Well, good morning, everyone. It's really great to be with you. For those of you I don't know, my name's Chris Brockway. I have the real joy and the privilege of being involved in the leadership of the church here at CBC. Uh, the more observant amongst you will notice that we've made a bit of a change this week uh, to our sermon theme. Uh, we were due to be finishing off our series, No Ordinary Father, this weekend. We're actually going to do that next weekend. I felt really convicted that we needed to speak into some of the events of the news over recent weeks. Uh, the very observant amongst you will know that next weekend we were due to be having a gift day as well for our 2020 vision, which is our build project where we're seeking to build the capacity of our church to be even more effective in the mission and the ministry that God has called us to. Our leadership team have made the decision actually to postpone that gift day for next weekend. We're not postponing the vision in any way, shape or form, still very much pursuing all that God has for us. We just felt it was right and appropriate under current circumstances with some of the financial pressures that different folk and their families are feeling that it wouldn't be appropriate to be asking for funds next weekend. So if you're prepared for that next weekend, we're so grateful. Please do um, reconsider um, whether or not you should be giving that money next weekend or whether you want to hold on to those funds for a future purpose. Or even you might feel obliged to redirect that money to a different cause. We really want to honour those people who have already given so sacrificially uh, to this project. Please know how much that's appreciated. And I would say again, we're not giving up on the vision. Those funds will be used for that purpose. But too, we want to honour amongst us those who find themselves at the moment facing financial uncertainty. And we want you to know that we entirely honour the challenges that you're facing and want you to know that we long that God's peace would be with you in these very uncertain times. Well, let's pray together, shall we, for a moment before we dig into God's word this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that your word is powerful, that it's active. It has the potential to change and to transform our lives, if only we'll open up our hearts. And Lord, this morning we come to you with hearts that are open and ready to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's really not been a good couple of weeks, has it, in the history of humanity. I wonder if, like me, you've found yourself feeling shocked and even appalled to see the story unfold of how George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man from Minneapolis, was detained by police and then fatally killed by the use of excessive and unnecessary force. Eight minutes and 46 seconds of madness, which has been captured on video and has since been circulated around the world, reveals the, the result of prejudice in the hearts of human beings. No doubt you will have seen the outpouring of grief and the subsequent expressions of anger and the protests about the way that black, Asian and minority uh, ethnic people have felt and experienced being treated on a regular basis. I wonder for you what, if any, emotional impact this has had upon you. For me, it's made me take a very long and a serious look in the mirror. It's made me question more than ever what prejudices I might just be harbouring in my own heart. You see, regardless of the colour of our skin or our ethnicity, these events remind us that if they go unchecked, prejudice of all kinds and of all forms can have a devastating effect in a diverse society. Of course, the anger over George Floyd's death is understandable. 
whatever the events and the circumstances that led up to his arrest, he did not deserve to die in the manner in which he died. Now, we need to be honest, this was a messy and it was a high-tension situation. It was a cocktail of rights and wrongs on both sides. George Floyd was no saint. But no human being, regardless of their skin colour or as a consequence of the moral choices that they've been making, deserved to die in the way in which he died. George Floyd was a Christian. He was a man who had been struggling to get his life right. In fact, if you read more deeply into the story, which is not what the press are necessarily speaking about, is he'd actually spent decades trying to get his life right. And it was a battle that he had consistently struggled to win. At the point of his detention, it's now well documented that he was high on drugs of some sort and he was causing significant distress to other people as a consequence. But even with those facts on the table, none of that takes away from the reality that his death was cruel and it was inhumane and it was in the truest sense of evil. The outpouring of grief and the anger and the protests have gone on to reveal just how much pain there is in the world around issues of prejudice and around issues of injustice. The death of George Floyd has become a catalyst which has once again necessarily taken the lid off of this issue of prejudice. As various commentators have pointed out, this wasn't a rare event in the States or even around the world. Those people who were charged with the responsibility of protecting him were the ones who killed him, even if he was making some questionable choices at the time of his detention. Someone has pointed out in a news report that it's not that racism is getting worse in the world, it's just that it's getting filmed and therefore it's harder to deny it. Yinka, who is the new president, brand new president of the Baptist Union of Britain, has suggested that this event stands as a metaphor of prejudice towards people of colour. But I want to suggest that the events surrounding George Floyd actually stand as a metaphor of prejudice of all forms. There is a risk with all prejudice and injustice that one or two people will actively engage in that prejudice as tangible perpetrators of it, whilst others simply stand on and watch, even though they've had the power to do something about that injustice. That, if you like, is the metaphor that Yinka speaks of. This event is a reminder of the stranglehold that prejudice can have. You might have thought that more than 50 years on from the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., that the world had moved on in respect to issues of racism. But clearly that's not so. The world hasn't moved on generally with regard to prejudice. And we need to say, don't we, that prejudice is not just America's problem. Prejudice is not only a problem for black, Asian and minority ethnic groups even. Prejudice is a problem right here in the UK. Prejudice, I'm very sorry and sad to say, is also a problem still in the church. Prejudice is a problem of all and for all people in every place. Every single one of us is at risk of being a victim of prejudice. But the flip side of the coin is also true, that every single one of us is also at risk of being a perpetrator of prejudice. Now let me be really honest for a moment. I really don't like the idea that my thoughts or my actions 
could be and sometimes are prejudicial. I really hate that thought, that I could ever be the perpetrator of such injustice. And yet, if I take an honest look at my heart, I know that it's not 100% pure on these issues. It can't be, in fact, because prejudice of all forms is one of the most evil and one of the most oftentimes subtle consequences of living as a fallen and as a broken human being. There's a black uh, professor called Abraham Kendi who whose book I've been reading, and he argues powerfully in his book, which is called How to Be an Anti-Racist, that everyone, himself included, is at one level racist. It's part of what it means, if you like, to live with a, a sinful nature this side of heaven. He says, therefore, you can never declare yourself to be not racist, but, he argues, you can be an anti-racist. Someone who proactively seeks to, to counter and then to speak up against racist ideas and attitudes. An anti-racist. As a Christian, the, the gospel of Jesus compels me and it compels you, if we're going to live out this gospel fully and live it out passionately, to speak whenever there is injustice. What happened in the US a few weeks ago was an injustice. What happens day in, day out in the lives of different people of all kinds around themes of prejudice are injustices. And injustice is a righteousness issue. I was very challenged this week when I heard a black church leader say this. If we're silent, then we are complicit in all that's going on in the world. I've realised something about myself, and it's this, is that on the issue of race and ethnicity and prejudice around these things, I've realised something about myself, and it's this, is that on the whole, I've been pretty silent on this issue. Instead of speaking out, I've often opted to leave all of the talking about these themes to black and ethnic minority leaders. And that's not something that I'm particularly proud of when I think about it now. I should have been adding my voice to these injustices. Something else has really struck my heart as I've watched over and over again the, the video of George Floyd's arrest. I've noticed something which, if I'm honest, really worries me. The more I've watched the video, the more numbed I've become to what I've been seeing. When I first watched it, when it first came out, it had this kind of visceral, heartbreaking impact on me. But after several watches, it was barely touching my emotions. And that, of course, is what happens with sin generally, but it's particularly what happens with the sin of prejudice of all kinds in our lives. Our emotions can become so numb to the point that what should be breaking our hearts because it breaks the heart of God doesn't even make us flinch. And I have a prayer over myself, and I want to invite you to pray this prayer over yourself too. It's this, Lord, please don't ever let me become so numbed to the injustices that are happening in this world of all sorts that I'm not led to do something about them or to speak out against them when I have opportunity. As I want us to see now from James chapter 2, Scripture calls us to call out all forms of prejudice and injustice. Now, there are no end of Scripture verses we could have gone to on this theme. The Bible is full of them, but today I've landed in James. But consistently, the Bible's message is the same. The church should be a place where diversity is celebrated. The church should be a place where diversity is encouraged. And the church should be a place where we demonstrate in tangible ways to the world 
what diversity looks like. We should be fighting for diversity in Jesus' name because the gospel is one of the only things that's able to reconcile and bring together all people of all kinds as brothers and sisters under the family of Christ, no matter who we are. Scripture speaks about the dividing wall being removed of Jew and Gentile and rich and poor and slave and free and so on. Well, let's pick up this theme of prejudice or showing favouritism, perhaps we might say, in James chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 11 verses and then we'll come back to verses 12 and 13. Scripture says this, My brothers and sisters, believe, uh, believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Suppose that a man comes into your meeting and he's wearing gold rings and he's got on fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you pay special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you can stand here or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and you're convicted by the law as law breakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a law breaker. The opening words of James chapter 2 say it pretty clearly, don't they? Believers in Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. In James 2 verse 1, James is saying in effect their faith in God and partiality are incompatible. They simply don't go together. He then goes on to give this illustration. Now he could have given many illustrations of prejudice here, but he chooses this one. Speaking about how prejudice might cause you to say, show favouritism or we might say prejudicial attitudes. And he chooses the case study of a wealthy person over an impoverished person. James says it so clearly, doesn't he, in verse 5, no, that's not how it's to be in the kingdom of God. This is not how God operates. If anything, the kingdom of God, God turns things upside down and does it the opposite way. And then he points his hearers back to the Ten Commandments in verse 8, and he says, you should be loving your neighbour as you love yourself. He's saying here, in effect, if you don't love others in the same way that you love yourself, then you're committing a sin. Well, that's not easy to hear, hear, is it? But the Bible is not sugarcoating any of this stuff in this moment. Well, think about Jesus for just a moment. We know that Jesus wasn't prejudiced. In Luke 14, verse 12, it says of Jesus this. Uh, it says of Jesus this and he went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbours, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. 
But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Prejudice can run so deeply that sometimes it does take a tragedy like the one we've experienced to help us see just how wrong it is to discriminate on the basis of physical differences. And both Jesus and James here are urging a different way. James in verse 2 speaks about two people, one who's rich and one who's poor. Now the word that James uses here when he speaks about the individual with the gold ring literally means that he was gold-fingered suggesting that this man didn't just have one ring on his finger, but he had many rings running the length of his finger. James says to us, this man too had fine clothes made of the finest materials. And here in this moment, the usher is faced with a choice. But in this moment, the usher reveals his prejudice and perhaps even the prejudice of an entire worshipping community. And he's wrestling with the question, well, where should I seat these two people? Matthew chapter 23 verse 6 helps us really understand this situation better and more fully by telling us that within the synagogues there were chief seats. There were special seats that were reserved for special people. Now of course the Pharisees absolutely loved the idea of these chief seats and they probably would have been located down at the front of the church. And you can imagine them walking into the church and elegantly in their robes, marching towards these seats, knowing that they've been reserved for them and knowing that as they walk, they would be calling attention to themselves and revealing how important they were. And here we find this usher faced with a decision. And what we discover is the usher bases his decision on external factors only. And James says so clearly in verse four that this is discrimination. And it says in verse four that this man's motives were evil. And you know, if there's one place where class distinctions and discriminations of all sorts, not just racism, should break down, it's in the place of worship. Distinctions such as age and colour and money, status, rank, size, clothing, should mean nothing in the kingdom of God and nothing in the church. And yet, if we're honest, subconsciously, sometimes even consciously, these are things that we're thinking about. Jesus said in John 7:24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In other words, look at the heart. Don't just look at the external appearance. And God is saying to us here through James in verse 10, look, you can't pick and choose over these things. You either keep the whole of this law all of the time or you don't keep it at all. Now, as I said a few moments ago, I really hate the thought that any of this could be true that actually if I break one part of the law then I'm breaking all of it but I have to recognize when it comes to issues of favoritism and acting prejudicially well I'm guilty not because I'm breaking these laws in a big way but because I break them even in a small way guilty perhaps even because sometimes I've been silent as I said when I should have spoken out even though I'm not an obvious perpetrator of these things myself In verses 5 to 11, James gives us three really great arguments why prejudice is wrong. And I want to just share these with you as bullet points this morning. And the first point James makes is this, is prejudice is not true of God. Prejudice is not something that you'll find in God's character. He says in verse 5, Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom? The God that we love, the God that we've come to know, 
turns the world upside down and says, look at things the opposite way to which you might do it humanly. There's not an ounce of prejudice in the character of God. But secondly, James says here, look, God isn't concerned about wealth or poverty. In fact, God isn't concerned about half the things that we find ourselves getting bothered about. But James says God does care about the condition of a person's soul. The people that James is writing to here were busy exalting the rich. And yet it was these very same people, he says, who were the ones who were causing their pain and their injury by dragging them off to court and exploiting them with power. God doesn't get bothered about some of the things that we get bothered about. And the challenge for myself, and maybe the challenge for you too today, is to look at the world through the eyes that God looks at them. And what we discover is God doesn't look at external appearance, but he looks at the heart. And then thirdly, in verses 8 to 11, James is saying that prejudice is sinful. Why? Because it's against the very word of God. One of the laws that God had given to Moses all those years ago was you shall love your neighbour as you love yourself. Showing partiality and acting prejudicially, he says, is a direct violation of that law. And we need to be honest, don't we? Most of us are not prejudicial to the person that we see in the mirror. Most of us love the person that we see in the mirror and we treat them well. As I was thinking about all this, I was thinking about a game that I've got a very vague memory of playing when I was in the junior section of Boys Brigade as a child. And it was a game that they called Saints and Sinners. And what happened in this game was they would set up a hoop at a certain distance and then each child was given 10 bean bags. And the object of the game was to aim the bean bags and try and make them land inside the hoop. And if anyone managed to get all of the bean bags in through the hoop, they were proclaimed to be a saint and they were celebrated. But if any child missed even just once, then he was called a sinner. Now, here's the thing with this game. If the child missed with all 10 bean bags, he was no greater a sinner than he was than if he missed with just one bean bag. One error, if you like, was as bad as 10. That was the rule of the game. If you managed to achieve it with all 10, you were a saint. If you missed with even one bean bag, you were mocked as being a sinner. And that's what James is saying here. He's saying what's true physically in that game is also true spiritually. Maybe you've heard the, the story of the terrible incident that occurred in the life of Gandhi. Here was a man who would go on to receive the world attention. He says this in his autobiography of his student days. He says, I was deeply interested in the story of the Bible. I was deeply touched by the reading of the Gospels. And it says in his autobiography, he even seriously considered becoming a convert to Christianity. He argues that Christianity seemed to offer the real solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India. Christianity was the solution to prejudice and to injustice. And then one Sunday he got up the courage to go to a nearby church service and to um, go into that church. And he decided that he would go and see the minister and that he would ask for instruction in the way of salvation. He would ask for more explanation on some of these doctrines that confused him. But the story goes that as he entered the sanctuary, one of the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested to him that he go and worship with his own people. He left and he never, ever came back. And he said this, if Christians have caste differences also, 
I might as well remain a Hindu. Now, Gandhi went on to become one of the most famous people in history and in India because he was a champion of the civil rights movement there. But here was a man, because of the prejudice of believers in Christ, who was never given the opportunity to experience the freedom of being a child of God. All because of the prejudice of one person or maybe even the prejudice of a whole church. In verses 12 to 13 of James chapter 2, there's this little test that we can all take to check out, in a sense, the genuineness of our faith in Jesus. But it's a great test as well to think about how we treat other people. And as I read this to you, I want to challenge you to challenge yourself with the things I challenge myself with. Would I pass this test that's given to us? Verse 12 says this, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We all show prejudice at times, don't we? And I wonder for you if there's anybody that you won't talk to. I wonder if there's anybody that you simply won't acknowledge their presence, maybe because of racial or social or economic or maybe even educational factors. I wonder if there are others who you treat preferentially. I wonder if there are others who you treat badly. Maybe even there are others who treat you in a particular way which is destructive. I wonder if we're obeying the scriptures. I wonder if we're following the example of Jesus in our treatment of others. As I close this morning, I want to close with a short prayer that Billy Graham offered in one of his devotionals. And then I'll close with a prayer of my own. Let's pray together. Billy Graham prayed, Heavenly Father, fill me with that supernatural love of Jesus that enables me to reach out to the myriads of people who in and of myself would be impossible to love. And my prayer is, Heavenly Father, I pray that this brutal killing of George Floyd in Minnesota and all of the subsequent outflowing of grief and pain as a consequence, would lead us more deeply into reconciliation and into unity, not just in the, in the States, but around the world. Lord, we recognise that the stark and oftentimes uncomfortable truth is that some of these injustices are perpetrated and promoted by our own unconscious attitudes and our words of prejudice, subtle discrimination and perhaps even sometimes favouritism. We recognise today together this sinfulness in our communities and in ourselves and Lord, maybe even in the life of our church. And therefore, Lord, together, scattered, but a community that's together online, we repent. We confess that we've contributed towards these injustices towards each other Knowingly, but more often unknowingly. We ask for God's forgiveness and we seek forgiveness from one another. And Lord, today we pray for your grace to enable us to love not 
only in word, but also to love in deed. We ask you, God, to strengthen us and to remove structural and systemic setups that create the atmosphere of injustice and which enable all forms of prejudice to thrive. God, break our hearts this morning with the things that break yours. Break our denial. And give us hearts, we pray, that are full of love, respect and compassion for all people. In Jesus' name. Amen.